It's July 8th, 2008, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you as always from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. Ah, the glorious sound of a symphony orchestra. Nothing quite as stirring as hearing great players on great instruments playing great music. In this case, it's our theme music, the finale of Beethoven's second symphony. Of course, Beethoven himself was already beginning to experience the deafness that would overtake him. Imagine the long, drawn-out experience of hearing only an internal music music existing only in the imagination, gradually overtaking all other auditory experience, hearing nothing but one's own inner harmonies. Ah, silence. Well, we don't have much silence in today's world. In fact, since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, there has been a constant increase in background noise. Factories... Automobiles, airplanes, televisions, radios, construction noise, rock concerts, symphony orchestras. Ooh, did I say symphony orchestras? Yeah, that same glorious music that's so wonderful to listen to is causing all sorts of problems for many of us who play it. We're getting hearing damage. While the world was getting noisier, so was 19th century orchestral music. Beginning, most notably, with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, building with the music of Hector Berlioz and finding culmination in the huge orchestral forces of Mahler and especially Wagner, the move from the intimacy of the classical court music of Mozart and Haydn to the more populist venues of the increasingly large concert and opera halls demanded more and more sheer volume. Indeed, instruments were increasing in power. Valveless classical trumpets and horns were replaced with more sophisticated technologies. Violins were modified with new fingerboards, steel strings and stronger bows. Woodwinds were getting more tone holes and more keys. Everything got louder. Playing techniques became more and more athletic, and orchestras became capable of greater and greater amplitude. Unfortunately, the one thing that didn't change was the anatomy of the human ear and the limits to which it could be pushed. Let's do a little review of the mechanics of hearing. Sound energy, expressed as pressure waves, enters the ear canal, causing the eardrum to vibrate. That energy is transferred through the ossicles of the middle ear and to the cochlea, where thousands of little hair cells, waving in the fluid-filled channels of the cochlea, 
transfer the vibration into nerve impulses and eventually processing by our brain. There are a bunch of ways that this system can get damaged. Beethoven's condition was likely otosclerosis, a disease which causes bony growth on the ossicles and immobilize the stapes, prohibits mechanical energy from being transferred to the cochlea. Apparently, it can affect approximately 1 in 200 people. Nowadays, it can often be treated quite successfully with a procedure like a stapedotomy. Another common condition, Meniere's disease, is a condition involving fluid pressure within the cochlea. It causes hearing loss, dizziness, and often tinnitus, and it's very common. Some of you will have experienced bouts of this debilitating condition, which remains difficult to treat successfully. Drug-induced hearing loss is usually associated with what are referred to as ototoxic medications, including many antibiotics, chemotherapy agents, and even overdoses of aspirin. It also involves tinnitus and sometimes is permanent. Tumors, especially vestibular schwannomas on the eighth cranial nerve, are pretty rare, but many of you with asymmetrical hearing loss may have had testing for this condition. Trauma involves events like punctured eardrums, sudden changes of air pressure, and the effect of high-impact noises like gunshots or explosions. Presbycusis, or age-related hearing loss, is of course incredibly common, usually involving high-frequency hearing loss and tending to affect men more than women. Baby boomers are just entering into a period of big-time presbycusis symptoms, including difficulty in conversation, inability to communicate in social situations, turning the television too loud, oh, and failing to respond politely to our spouse. And finally, we have noise-induced hearing loss, or NIHL, and this is the subject of greatest interest to all performing musicians. Not now! Oh, that's better. As I was saying, there are two essential components of musical sound, intensity and frequency. Intensity is perceived as loudness, and frequency is perceived as pitch. Hearing loss involves reduced ability to perceive different combinations of intensity and frequency. Most often, hearing loss begins with a reduction in our high-frequency thresholds, threshold being the level at which we are audibly responsive to some sound input. Intensity thresholds are measured in decibels, which are organized in a logarithmic scale, starting at zero for the softest audible sound. On that logarithmic scale of sound intensity, 80 decibels is 10 times louder than 70 decibels, and 90 decibels is 100 times louder than 70 decibels. So if you have a 20 decibel hearing loss at a particular frequency, it means that you need 100 times more energy for a sound at that frequency to get through to your brain. Noise-induced hearing loss occurs because the thousands of exquisitely tiny hair cells in the cochlea are easily damaged by repeated overload. There are individual hair cells associated with every audible frequency from 20 cycles per second all the way up to 20,000 cycles per second. The cochlea, which is shaped like a snail shell, has fluid-filled channels, with hair cells responsible for high frequencies at the window of the cochlea and those responsible for low frequencies at the apex. 
It's the nature of the fluid dynamics within the cochlea that the higher frequency hair cells tend to be damaged before the low frequency hair cells. With age, we all begin to lose sensitivity to higher frequencies. Hey, did you know that school kids, elementary school kids, can download high-frequency ringtones for their cell phones, knowing they can reliably call each other during class without their older teachers hearing? (laughs) This is also why older conductors often ask for more sound from the high instruments, flutes, piccolos, first violins, as they begin to crave more input in those missing higher frequencies. High-end hearing loss is most immediately felt in conversation, where the primary components of human speech at around 4,000 cycles begin to get harder and harder to recognize. If you take away all of the higher frequencies in speech, it becomes more and more difficult to understand. So it gets harder to perceive conversations, especially in noisy environments, and your family has to start shouting. Anyway, back to the subject of NIHL. Damage to those cochlear hair cells is a product of intensity and duration. Audiologists refer to instruments called dosimeters to measure the amount of noise an individual is exposed to over a period of time. Occupational and health watchdogs have established guidelines for our exposure to sound, and they are always a combination of average decibels and duration. For example, exposure to 85 decibels for 8 hours is considered safe for the average individual. Exposure to 88 decibels, which on the logarithmic scale is twice as loud, is safe for only 4 hours. You can listen to music at 91 decibels safely for 2 hours, but by the time you get to 100 decibels, 15 minutes is the maximum. And at 109 decibels, only about 55 seconds is acceptable. For the average person, exposure that exceeds these sound loads threatens damage. That damage is first manifest as temporary threshold loss, meaning that for a period of time, you will have some problems hearing a particular frequency below a particular intensity. Fortunately, the cochleal hair cells can recover from these temporary losses, provided we give them a good 14 or 16 hour rest. All of you will have experienced ringing in the ears and auditory fatigue after being in a noisy environment, and you will identify with the intuitive need to find a good night's sleep and some quiet for a day to recover. It's a noisy world we live in. The path to noise-induced hearing loss begins when we start to experience repeated temporary threshold losses. Eventually, our cochlear hair cells become damaged beyond repair, and hearing loss becomes permanent. If you consider that we have about 20,000 hair cells in each cochlea, you can see that the cumulative effect of repeated overload will slowly, but inexorably, catch up with us. Intensity is very much a function of distance. The closer you are to a sound source, the louder it will be. Obviously, if you stand one foot away from a blaring trumpet, your cochlea will be receiving a much higher dose of intensity than if you're ten feet away. Proximity to the intensity of loud instruments lies at the heart of the orchestral musician's dilemma. So, 
you're probably fairly curious as to just how loud it gets on stage. It depends, of course, entirely on where you're sitting and what instrument you play. In a study of Chicago symphony musicians, 53% showed hearing loss. But if you played bass, cello, or harp, you were at an advantage. Violinists and violists show fairly consistent asymmetric hearing loss with primary damage to the left ears. And of course, that makes sense considering that they have the darn instruments under their left ears. And anyone sitting directly in front of brass sections or in close proximity to timpani or piccolos is at a big disadvantage. Okay, so how loud does it get? The answer is astonishingly loud, worrisomely loud, damaging loud, clean your teeth ultrasonically loud. For example, I was sitting last week during a rehearsal of Mahler's first symphony, and I measured consistent readings of 96 decibels. Now, that's loud, but it's acceptable for a period of time, but... Here's the but. That was measured in the balcony about 90 feet away from the orchestra. Sitting in my bassoon chair with fortissimo trumpets three feet behind me, 112 decibels. Damage can occur with 45 seconds exposure. Folks, the average chainsaw operates at about 115 decibels. Would you use a chainsaw without hearing protection? Or would you stand immediately in front of the amplifiers at a rock concert? Would you take a casual walk next to a 747 idling on the tarmac? Okay, symphony lovers, I'll bet you think that all those well-educated, highly intelligent symphony musicians that you come to hear so often have this problem in hand and are meticulous about protecting their hearing. Uh Uh-uh. No way. The truth is, a lot of us sweep the problem under the rug and pretend we're invincible. Either that, or we've accepted the inevitability of enduring hearing loss. Well, actually, the reasons are more complex and bound up with expectations, stigmas, and lack of knowledge. Well, what can symphony musicians do to protect their hearing? Essentially, the same thing as any of you would in a dangerously loud situation. You stuff something in your ears. And there are lots of potential solutions. For example, here at the National Arts Centre, we have a large dispenser of foam earplugs right next to the stage entrance, just like you would find in any typical factory. Like other well-managed orchestras, our administration will pay for musicians to have custom earplugs fitted. But what is rather surprising is that only a minority of the members of our orchestra have actually taken advantage of this option. The primary reason for this reticence is that wearing earplugs compromises our ability to make high-level artistic judgments. It's harder to balance and to tune, more difficult to achieve really delicate ensemble and tricky to judge our own individual sonorities. Now, there are different levels of earplugs. The yellow foam inserts that are so common are a fairly blunt, although effective, solution. 
Since the mid-1980s, there has been a more sophisticated product, musicians' earplugs, which are equipped with small valves that are placed in a custom-molded earplug. These are designed to attenuate, or reduce, intensity at a very flat frequency curve. So theoretically, they allow a more even reduction in volume from low to high frequencies. These insert plugs come in various levels of attenuation, reducing ear exposure by 9 decibels, 15 decibels, or for the really loudest circumstances, 25 decibels. In other words, if a musician is wearing a 15 decibel limiter, he will be getting about 50 times less intensity than without protection, which can make the difference between healthy and utterly shredded cochleas. The audiologists swear by these, but the truth is that they require a fair bit of compromise for the user. I have both 9 decibel and 15 decibel limiters and have become quite disciplined in their use. If you must know, I've got a fair bit of hearing loss. Not hard to understand because I've played bassoon professionally for about 35 years and for most of that time have a brass section sitting very close behind and slightly to the left. Surprise, surprise, I have significant high-end hearing loss in my left ear and I've started wearing a sophisticating hearing aid to boost the high frequencies in that ear. This device gives me the definition and clarity for the instruments to my left that had gradually been disappearing, and it gives me a much better chance of understanding conversation in noisy rooms. If musicians often lack diligence in protecting their ears, they are equally reticent about actually having their hearing tested. Many of my colleagues have never had an audiogram, so they have no way of quantifying the losses that they are experiencing. You simply can't know how your hearing is progressing without having a reference point. I've been meaning to have my hearing tested, but, uh, oh, I just never get around to it. A common response. I can reliably report that at least half of the middle-aged professional musicians I know complain of some degree of hearing loss. Every single bassoon player over the age of 50 that I have approached about this confirms that they can't participate in easy conversation anymore. Now let me assure you, I can count on one hand the musicians I know who have actually acquired hearing aids. There is a huge reluctance to face the fact that making music in a big orchestra often damages the most valuable instruments any of us possess, our ears. You know, if you give the subject even the briefest thought, you'll see the absurdity of musicians' resistance to dealing with the problem. Would a visual artist refrain from seeing an optometrist if he couldn't focus on his brushstrokes? Would that artist's public see him as somehow diminished if he didn't possess 20-20 vision? Well, of course not. So why would a musician with a hearing aid be concerned about a perceived negative stigma? have not been kind to our ears. A 1963 study of hearing loss rates was repeated with the same demographic in 1993 and revealed an astonishing increase in reported hearing loss 
in 50-year-old men. No surprise when you consider that in those 30 years, we had the advent of heavily amplified rock music, personal entertainment devices like the Walkman, as well as ever-increasing environmental noise pollution. And now an even more worrisome trend is emerging in our children. A recent study showed that 12.5% of Americans under the age of 20 now experience some noise-induced hearing loss. The primary culprit is the iPod or the MP3 player and that ubiquitous earbud. On the bus, on the subway, on the street, in the library, everywhere we go we see people lost in their own personal sound environment with powerful little transducers jammed into their ear canals. The potential for damage occurs when the listener cranks up the volume on the player in order to hear their music over the general din of their environment. Sticking a slim earbud into the ear canal will boost the already strong input signal by as much as 9 decibels. As always, the formula for hearing loss is intensity times duration. Many audiologists are recommending that nobody should be listening to iPods with the volume setting exceeding 60% of the maximum output. And if it's necessary to do so, then the amount of listening time must be curtailed to compensate. Well, here's an amazing piece of information. Did you know that Apple Corporation modifies its iPods sold in France so that they don't exceed a 100 decibel limit set by the French government? Furthermore, a class action lawsuit in California is currently seeking to have the same restrictions applied to sales of MP3 players throughout that state. Meanwhile, Apple recognizing that not all of its customers are capable of making sensible choices about how to use their products, now offers a free download of a software patch that will prevent any recent generation of iPods from outputting more than 100 decibels. If you're sitting next to someone in a public space and can clearly hear the boom of their earbuds, you can pretty much be assured that that individual will be asking his wife to repeat herself in about 20 years. Among the strategies that musicians use for protecting themselves when in close proximity to the loud instruments is to use clear plexiglass baffles, shields as they're usually called. These have been in use for 15 or 20 years in many orchestras. They're usually mounted on the seat back of a musician's chair, and they provide about a 10 decibel relief from the most intense sounds, provided the musician's head stays within about 7 inches. The biggest objection to these sound baffles is from brass players when tight stage seating requires them to play directly into a flat, reflective surface. Their sound bounces back at them and causes both psychological and physical problems for the players. When specific vibrational frequencies are reflected back into the bell of a trumpet, the player may feel resistance in the lips as well as a rather false sense of their sonority. The problem is most pronounced when a large orchestra is compressed onto an undersized stage and there's not room to give adequate space between brass player and baffle. Well, as you can imagine, this causes a lot of tension between musicians. Close proximity to a loud instrument is damaging and painful, 
but that very proximity can create huge artistic problems for the perpetrator. Well, I use the term in jest. It's not the fault of a trumpet player that Tchaikovsky is asking for a triple fortissimo, and the conductor is wildly gesticulating for more sound, more sound. The solution is for the players in the line of fire to wear good earplugs, and they have to make that choice over and over and over again. When you come to concerts, you will undoubtedly see the occasional musician engaged in removing earplugs from time to time. This always corresponds to changes in the soundscape, with earplugs going in for fortissimos and coming out so as not to compromise the details of softer passages. It can be annoying to watch, but most conductors are sensitive and understanding of the plight of their musicians. After all this rather disturbing discussion of the dangers of orchestral music to musicians' hearing, I guess I should turn to the question of the potential danger to audiences. Fortunately, distance solves most of these problems. And while sound levels from an audience perspective can on occasion get up to about 95 decibels, this never lasts long enough to be of any real concern to a listener. Remember, it's always a question of the combination of average intensity times duration. My largest concern for a non-performing music lover is the potential danger in cranking up home loudspeakers for too long, as well as the previously mentioned perils of in-the-ear headphones. In those rare situations where an audience member leaves a concert hall with a ringing in the ears, it's likely a temporary threshold shift, and the cochlea will recover in about 14 hours. If you sit through Mahler's eighth, and take a subway home, I'd suggest you not mow the lawn the next morning. Give your ears a rest. question is, is all this sonic warfare worth it? Well, of course, the answer is always a resounding yes. There is nothing, nothing to compare with the unbelievable thrill of sitting in the middle of a symphony orchestra and being utterly overwhelmed by the incredible color and power. Wanting to have that experience is one of the reasons musicians don't use earplugs early and consistently. But, you know, we're playing a game of roulette with our ears, and we need to seize the available technologies to improve the odds of having decent hearing as we get older. I don't want to have the television blaring in order to be entertained, and I certainly don't want my wife to be shouting at me when she says good morning. Above all, and this is the really important motivation to preserving what hearing we have left, we want to be able to hear every detail of the music that we love so much for as long as we can. Beethoven might have had music available in his imagination, but the rest of us need the real thing.
don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. Don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Explore the Symphony, with Marjolaine Laroche and Jean-Jacques Von Vlasselaer. You can also easily find this podcast as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast, N-A-C-O-C-A-S-T. The NACOcast has a Facebook group. Drop in for a chat on any of our NACOcast topics and meet other NACOcast listeners. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard for the new media team here at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa.